we're going to introduce does processing and layers matter, the science of clinical experience and clinical experience of complete dehydrated placental derived modality. Not the title that I came up with. Um, amnio, does it work and how's it processed, I guess, would maybe more the way I think of it. This is a talk that is supported by an educational grant by Organogenesis. And um, there are going to be two presenters today, myself. My name is Andrew Rader. I'm from Indiana, southern Indiana, and, um, which is really the mecca of all healthcare. A second only to Stony Brook University and Hospital, and uh, that's where Dr. Coolius is from. George Coolius is going to be joining me. He's a vascular surgeon. I am by uh, training a podiatrist and um, went on for additional training at a place called Curtis National Hand Center where I became very involved with flaps and grafts and evidence-based treatment protocols. So much of what we're, everything that we're going to be talking about today has to do with the evidence base for why we do what we do. <clears throat> the obligatory disclosures, our learning objectives, you can read for yourself. You don't need me to read to you, do you? And let's get after it. This is about when standard wound care is not enough, and that's pretty typical in, in our practice. So I'm going to take you through what we do in our clinic, and, um, and I, everything that we do is based off of an algorithm. The algorithm is evidence-based. It was developed 20-plus years ago. We update it every three months based on whatever sort of literature is out there and, and, and what, uh, what we need to be paying attention to. And we force everyone who is a provider in our clinic to walk that algorithm path. And it still allows enough flexibility to get to know the patient. That's done during that initial meeting, and that initial meeting is so important. So what I do is I walk into the room, and I'm not even allowed to look at the wound. It's the wound's got one of those blue chucks on it, so I don't right away cone in and say, okay, I can see this is on an ankle, therefore it's got to be a venous stasis ulceration, it's surrounded by hemosiderin, we're going to compress 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury, moist wound healing, debridement, and you'll heal up. And I have no idea in the meantime that it has already been biopsied and it's a, a basal cell carcinoma and I need to excise it and, you know, and I've blown the whole thing. So the wound is covered up with a chuck and I start, I do the same routine. I turn over the trash can. I've been doing that for 30, 30 years now. And I grab my clipboard, and yes, we do have computers in Indiana, but I still grab my clipboard, and I do the past medical history, medicines, allergies, family history, social history, surgical history, review systems, and I know something about the patient. Now, I understand something about that patient more than do you smoke and do you drink. I know how many steps are into their house. I know who's there to help take care of them. I know if they're on immunosuppressives, and I have to adjust that. I know if they've had, you know, all these different previous procedures, what's been done to it. I've... I've I come as close as I can to walking a mile in their shoes. I, I understand something about them. And let me tell you, there are some sordid, strange stories out there. And you all tell me the same thing when I come to your communities and I give talks. You, all t you, all, you, you tell me, well, you wouldn't believe the people we have here. They, you all tell me that your, your patients are non-compliant. I know. <laughs> Yeah, everyone's patients are non-compliant. There's a reason why they're in the wound care center, right? They've earned it. <laughs> so 
Um, so what you do is is you're you're following up everything about you follow you're learning everything about these patients. You gather your labs that you need to have, and the basic labs we get is a chem panel, CBC, hemoglobin A1C if they have diabetes, so we know what what's going on. Prealbumin, so we know what their protein's like right now, not 30 months ago. Sed rate, CRP, if we're worried about any sort of bone involvement. We gather some basic labs. Everybody gets a foot x-ray if they have a diabetic foot ulcer. That's the printed uh, clinical practice recommendations from ACFAS. And everything I'm telling you today is going to be in print from some organization. So we do all that stuff, and then we can start to look at the patient. And when we look at the patient, Everybody gets an ABI, and I get the shortcomings of the ABI, and as long as they haven't had a distal bypass or something like that, they still get the ABI. And the ACC and the AHA right now says if the ABI falls out of 0.9 to 1.4, you have to do a follow-up study. They don't tell you what the follow-up study is, but you gotta do a follow-up study. And so we do uh, uh, TCPO2s, you can do laser Doppler, you can do segmental pressures, you could do PVRs, I mean, you could do CTAs, I, I don't, they don't tell you what to do. You probably could tell us what to do better than they could. But you have to do some sort of follow-up study. And the reason is, is that these things that we're going to be talking about that you can put on wounds all cost money. It's like hundreds of dollars worth of money, you know. And, and so you don't want to put something on a wound that doesn't have a chance of healing. You have to right all the wrongs first. This is the part that's your responsibility. We're taking the patient out of this right now. This is all your responsibility. Right all the wrongs as much as you can first. Then you do a neuro exam. And the neuro exam, the ADA says we have to use a 10-gram monofilament. 10-gram monofilament's really quite worthless, but it does tell us if it, it really, all that we know about the 10-gram monofilament is Paul Brand taught us that uh, if people could feel the 10-gram monofilament, they could feel in India if the rats were eating the ends of their fingers and the ends of their toes at night, and that was defined as protective sensation, and there you go. We use a 10-gram monofilament. What? There's got to be more evidence than that, right? There isn't. That's it. That's all it means is that they can feel if rats are eating the ends of their fingers and the ends of their toes at night. That's disappointing. We're supposed to do that 10-gram monofilament nine places on the plantar aspect of the foot, one place on the dorsal aspect of the foot, and completely ignore the medial and lateral aspect of the foot because nobody cares about them anyway. They're the illegitimate stepchildren, I guess. And the plantar aspect of the foot, obviously that's the one with the silver spoon in its mouth. That's the one that gets all the attention, but you're supposed to do that. And it matters if they can't feel because another thing Paul Brand figured out is if they can't feel, they can't limp. And everybody who gets a wound who, from a neuropathic problem loses their ability to limp. And so we have to give them a limp. And that changes our thought process. Okay, I, I, during my exam, if I'm going to take compliance out of the, out of the quotient here, I'm going to have to give them a limp. I'm going to have to give them a limp all the time. You can give them a limp with a cam walker. And Armstrong and Lavery did that study where they put a pedometer inside the cam walker and a, cam, and a pedometer on the hip. And they made people cross their heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye, the whole thing that they, we used to say as kids, that you got to wear the, you got to wear the boot, got to wear the boot all the time, promise. And the patient said, hey, man, I, I got the boot thing. It's a week. I can do that. And they came back and they said, hey, do you wear the boot all the time? The patient said, absolutely, except for I had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I just, I did one of these things, you know, barely getting there. So don't worry, I wore the boot all the time. They checked the pedometers and they wore the boot 20% of the time. 
Guess what? They were non-compliant too. They didn't wear it 80% of the time. Same thought process goes with compression therapy. If you give people the choice of wearing compression therapy, uh, Job's, uh, some brand name, Ulster Care Stocking, I probably can't say Ulster Care either, some brand name stocking for this 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury that's got a zipper up the back, and you get them into that, that's appropriate compression. Well done. At least you've done that and not put a layer of tuba grip or two layers of tuba grip on it, which is blowing into the wind, but you've actually put real compression on it. That's great, but guess what? When they come back and they don't have it on and they tell you they just took it off that morning because they wanted to bathe, they're lying. They're non-compliant. They don't wear it. Whereas when you put on multi-layer type of compression dressings, sign the dressing, it's, you know whether or not they were compliant, whether it stayed on. So you have to force this compliance in these people. This is still all our responsibility here, and it's still the first slide. Um, and so then after you do all that, you look at the biomechanics, if it's lower extremity or how they're getting pressure for the rest of the body. Uh, finally, you get to look at the wound and wounds are easy. You guys do wounds day in and day out. I don't need to tell you anything about that. If it's dry, you wet it. If it's wet, you dry it, you debride it, excise it the first time, start all over with a new wound. I can't stress that enough. I learned that at Curtis National Hand Center is they would completely excise these wounds that they were going to do flaps and grafts on. And that if sometimes the flaps would work and sometimes they wouldn't, but the wounds would heal then. And that excision of the wound back to normal tissue and into normal tissue, changing that wound, it's already proven it's not wanting to heal. Get rid of it. That first trip needs to go to the OR almost always, if it's painful at all. But excise that wound. And then manage the wound environment. Get rid of infection, um, uh, moist wound healing, all the stuff that we've known for at least the last 30 plus years I've been doing this stuff. I mean, keep doing that sort of stuff. And then we'll talk real quickly here then about biofilm-based wound management. That's a big thing that, we, um, that we're focused on right now. Offload appropriately, don't give them a choice, compress. Hey, I didn't tell you how to offload, did I? I said to take the boot off. That was kind of a teasing thing to do. So what you, here's how we offload total contact casting if you have that capability and if you're up to that in your clinic is, is a real good way. But if, uh, if for some reason you can't or don't want to do that, you can still use the cam walkers, but you're supposed to make them irremovable. And the way it's been suggested always in the literature is you use fiberglass casting tape and do that. And it ruins the cam walker after a couple of go-rounds and you can't give them new cam walkers all the time. And so that kind of was a bit in, in our clinic. I didn't end up sticking with that program, but I went to the local home store and got the zip ties that were about this long. And you put two zip ties around the leg, one around the foot, and, um, you know, and then you know, cut off the little tagged end, write your name or the nurse's name on it or, or whatever it may be, but somebody writes something on it. And if they come back and they don't have the zip ties on, you can say, oh, you know, it's your health care. You're allowed to take the zip ties off and take the boot off, I guess. Yeah, although you now you need to sign an AMA form. And I don't know if... Uh, you know, but that means your insurance may or may not cover your care anymore. And I don't know if you've seen what the room charge is here. Usually by then they turn around and say, all right, I'll wear the stinking boot. But if they don't, if they say, yeah, give me the AMA form, I'll say, that's fine. You're choosing to hurt yourself. I need you to get a psych consult now. And the inevitable thing that happens then, and I do that. I, I'm not just making this, this part up. Wait, I'll make some other stuff up. But 
but I really do that. And what happens is one of two things. They back off. I've had one person go for the site consult, in all fairness, and he was a postal employee, which was double worrisome for me. <laughs> but um, but uh, usually they back off and they say, fine, I'll just do it. Uh, the other thing is, is they quit my wound care center and they go to yours and ruin your numbers. So either way, it works out for me, right? Okay, so we do all that kind of stuff, and the wounds are supposed to heal. They're supposed to go through a normal healing process, and it's three overlapping phases. And these phases um, can be exhausting to look at. And so just listen with me for a second here. What happens is there's an injury of some sort, and platelets come in, and the platelets aggregate, and they stop the bleeding, and that's good. And after they aggregate, they degranulate, and they send out a signal to the body saying, hey, there's an injury here. Why don't we go ahead and heal this? And so that signal to the body calls in neutrophils, which help fight off the infection bacteria in the area. They calls in macrophages that eat up cellular debris that was caused during the injury. And the MMPs go up, those evil MMPs that hang around too long. Those MMPs go up, and the, and the proteolytic enzymes go up, and they break down all the damaged collagen, and they're just cleaning up the site. Cleaning up, uh, we talked yesterday about it, it's like a construction site. You've got to clean it up first before you're going to build anything. Then the builders come in. The builders are the fibroblasts and the keratinocytes. They're the, they're the ones on the ground. Fibroblasts are on the ground. They're using building supplies, the extracellular matrix. And they're building walls. And the keratinocytes are putting a roof on the thing. And they're talking back and forth all the time to the different subcontractors out there saying, hey, we need plumbing in this wall, vascular factors. We need electricity in here. We need more building supplies over there. And that communication's happening through all of those signaling proteins, those, those growth factors that we keep hearing about. And so you need cells, signaling molecules, and an extracellular matrix in that second phase for the building phase to happen. If you bring in the building supplies during the first phase, the cleanup phase, all the building supplies get, all that happens to them is they get cleaned up. Nothing happens. So we're going to be, we'll eventually get to amnio products because that's what this talk is about, right? But if you put an amnio product on during this initial phase, you've wasted it. Don't do that. All it's going to do is get cleaned up. You want to put an amnio product on during the building phase if they need it. How do you know if they need it and how do we know? If we do everything right, if we did that whole first thing, that whole the whole history and physical and righted all the wrongs and did what we're supposed to do and offloaded with, the, with a, a total contact cast and compressed with multilayer compression and you know really just took charge of things. This is how we do. This is what's published. DFUs, we heal a quarter of them in 12 weeks, almost a third of them in 20 weeks. That's five months. VLUs, in almost six months, we're healing 44% of them. Those are discouraging numbers, huh? Yeah. But that's nationally what's happening. And, uh, and of course, my wound care center is so much better than these numbers, and I'm sure yours is too, but we're all part of that statistic. Whether we like it or not, those are the numbers that if you go searching around in the insurance databases, that's what you got. Okay? So how do we know if they're not going to heal? We have indicators, fortunately. If you are doing something for the first four weeks and they don't close roughly 50%, you can see the exact numbers up here, but if they don't roughly close 50% in four weeks, they're not going to heal. 
So uh, in, the, in the first study by Peter Sheehan done for DFUs that was published back in 2003, he went on to look and give numbers uh, as far as if they don't heal 50%, there's an 8% chance that they're ever going to heal in their lifetime, which is a pretty disheartening number. And that's if you keep doing the same thing. If you do the same thing at week five, they didn't heal 50%. You do the same thing at week five that you were doing at week four, you wasted a week of their life. If you do it at week six, you've wasted two weeks of their life. You know, it's, it's what my grandmother always told me. It's time to get off the pot. You've got to do something about that. She was a feisty little Irish woman who cheated at cards, so I don't want to go into that too much. I mean, really cheated. Thought we couldn't tell. We were the ones in the room that could hear and see. She couldn't. <laughs> so this four-week indicator, as, uh, as some of you all know from yesterday, I think of that as like a dating relationship. This is a slide you didn't see yesterday. And, um, and so in a dating relationship, you know, uh, say you think this is the greatest thing in the world and you want to come to southern Indiana and uh, find out everything about uh, uh, how we do wound care down there. And while you're there, uh, you think, all right, this is more boring than what I thought it was going to be. So you get on FarmersOnly.com because you don't have to be lonely on FarmersOnly.com. <laughs> I don't know if you all have that or not, but that's a real thing with talking dogs and everything. And so you meet a guy uh, named Bubba, and Bubba shows up, takes you to the Shoney's, which has got the breakfast bar in the morning. They switch over to lunch at 11.30, so he takes you at 11 o'clock, and you hit the breakfast bar, you hit the lunch bar, and, um, and then uh, he does the same thing week after week. He's wearing the Carhartt overalls, and he's got the John Deere cap, a little sideways, dirt underneath the fingernails. By week four, um, you all decide, and, and I'm, I'm being very politically correct by not saying you ladies. It could be you guys, too. I don't you know, just whatever, give peace a chance. Um, so uh, you all decide, well, this isn't going to work out. And so what do you tell this guy? You tell him all the same thing. And I won't wait for the answer because you guys screamed it at me yesterday and gave, gave me post-traumatic stress disorder, whoever you guys were. Um, but uh, they say the same thing. It's not me. It's you. No, it's not you. It's me. I should know that. I've heard that plenty of times. It's not you. It's me. And it's a lie. It's not. It's really, it's really Bubba's that's the problem. But you try to make it easy on him. So you have that heart-to-heart conversation. After four weeks of wound care, this is what we're talking about is wound care, right? I'm talking about relationships here, but we should be talking about it. After four weeks of wound care, it's the same sort of thing, except you've done everything right. You did the whole history. You did the whole physical. You righted the wrongs. You got the vascular supply. You compressed. You uploaded. You did everything that you're supposed to do. And so it's finally time to say, you know what? It's not me. It's you. There's something wrong with you. That's why we have such lousy numbers, 21% at 12 weeks, 31% at at five months, 41% at six months. That's why we have such lousy numbers. And part of the reason why we have those lousy numbers is because we don't get them out of the inflammatory phase. And that's been really a more of a recent revelation for me. <coughs> and, and, uh, and we're still working our way to the amnio products, but you can't put an amnio product on in that inflammatory phase. Remember, the inflammatory phase is the cleanup phase. And in that in- cleanup phase, there's two things that can make it get stuck there. Biofilm, which is produced by some bacteria, and the MMPs and those proteolytic enzymes stay too high. The biofilm can compete for the, um, 
for the nutrients in the area and create a relatively anaerobic environment. And it, pre it, it produces a safe house, a bunker for bacteria, so that when you put topical antibiotics on from the outside or give them from the inside, they don't get into that. And so they're all protected inside there. What do we do with biofilm? We debride it. And that really works well. We get rid of 99% of biofilm with a good debridement. So you debride it, and in a few hours it starts to grow back, and by three days it's back 100%. So you need to do something that prevents the biofilm from coming back. There are some different approaches for that, and we'll look at that in just a second. Um, the other thing you need to do is you need to settle down these, these enzymes that keep breaking everything down, the MMPs and the proteolytic enzymes. And, um, and so everyone who shows up in your clinic who is in that first or that cleanup phase, and we'll see why, how you can recognize them in a second, you need to get them out of the cleanup phase before you do anything in the building phase. And the amnio products are the building phase stuff, products, things. All right, so the first thing is collagen. Collagen is, is potent in knocking down the MMPs and the proteolytic enzymes. And more than that, if the collagen retains its normal cross-linking and its normal structure, it's hyperpotent in knocking those down. We learned that early on in the Promagran studies, or in the studies with the stop sign type of white thing. And... Um, and we found that if you throw enough of that at it, it knocks down the MMPs. They biopsied it before, they biopsied it afterwards. It was a great study. They did not offload anyone, and no one healed in that study. They didn't do the basics. It was still them. Remember? We've done the basics. It's not you. It's them. There's something wrong with them. So we need to throw collagen at them to knock down those proteolytic enzymes and the MMPs. And then the other thing that we need to do is get rid of the bacteria or keep the bacteria away that produce the biofilm. We've already debrided, we've done what we're supposed to do, but now we gotta keep those bacteria from regrowing in three days. Because we only see these people once a week. We can't accept three days of progress and, and four days of, of not, not progress walking backwards. So we have to do something to get rid of that biofilm. Nine studies are out there. Six of the studies showed 100% of the wounds by the time they walk into your wound care clinic have biofilm in them. Three of the studies showed it was still the majority, although not, quite a, not, a, not at 100%. So if you did a meta-analysis of all of those, what you'd find is that close to 90% of these wounds have biofilm at the time they walk into the, your wound care clinic. And yesterday we, we thought of that as like a roulette wheel where every number on the roulette wheel is 20 except for one number and that's 34 or something like that. What number are you going to bet on? 20, no kidding. When somebody walks into your wound care center, they're at 20. You can bet they're in that first phase, the cleanup phase of wound, of wound healing. You need to get them out of that before you do anything else. That's your first task. They're all in number 20 on the roulette wheel. So you remove the biofilm, and you've got to keep the bacteria from growing back. The way we can do that, a lot of things have been tried, and, uh, and here I've listed a few, silver, PHMB, Dakins, Cadexam, iodine, all, all sorts of different things have been tried. We're going to look at some of those things here and what happens with the biofilm. And, um, and this is from a two, 2010 article. There's some newer ones, too. But, uh, but you should look these up because it's a lot of things that I was taught are the perfect answer for it. It turns out aren't the perfect answer. Um, genomycin sulfate, well, we used to inject that around the edge of the wounds. We used to apply it topically. We do all sorts of things with gent sulfate. 
And, um, and we found that staph and pseudomonas in this article, as soon as six hours, are completely tolerant. At, uh, uh, they become tolerant, and at 48 to 92 hours, that's still within that week, they're completely tolerant. If you use a Versaget and completely debride all that stuff off, like they did in that study, and then when the bacteria start to grow back at five hours and are fully formed at 72 hours, they grow back completely tolerant to the genomycin sulfate. That's how quick, quickly that adaptation takes place. So we got rid of genomycin sulfate in ours. Then we said, okay, uh, how about uh, you know Dakin's? That's always been a good standby. I like Dakin's. Makes the room smell nicer than the alternative. And so Cordis drank Dakin's. We gave them all the recipe how to make it at home. You know, and in Indiana, they built their little wood fires and got their iron kettles out, right? So, um, but here, this study is done with 100% leach for pseudomonas. 39% of the bacteria became tolerant at 48 hours, and they retained that tolerance even after, again, all these studies were done with hydrodebridement and then waiting for the bacteria to come back, and the, they adapted that quickly. Cadexamer iodine and PHMB uh, were the two that didn't show that adaptation. And there's some good reasons in physics why that is, uh, but we're not gonna we're not gonna linger on that now. Although I'm glad to deal with it afterwards if any of y'all have questions. So it's they are stuck in that inflammatory phase when they show up. They are a number twenty on the roulette wheel. All wounds are stuck in that inflammatory phase. On presentation is a safe bet. It's one I'd take in Vegas. Biofilm keeps it there. And it keeps the MMPs and those proteolytic enzymes elevated. You have to debride the biofilm and that make it into that acute wound again. It reforms in 72 hours, so then you have to keep the biofilm from coming back and, um, and think about what you're using to keep it from coming back. Okay, so now we get them out of that inflammatory phase and we finally now get them into a a building phase. So they're out of the cleanup phase and they're in the building phase. And in four weeks, they should be in that, that building phase. It should be a nice, safe assumption at that point. If they're not healing 50% at four weeks, then you, there's something else wrong. They don't have the workers in the building phase. They don't have the fibroblasts and keratinocytes, or they don't have the extracellular matrix, or they don't have the signaling molecules. Something's missing in that second phase because all, all those three things, cells, signaling molecules, and extracellular matrix, all have to work together. And if they're not working together, nothing gets built. House doesn't go up. So if you've got them out of the inflammatory phase, these are the only three culprits that are left. Now, if they're healing 50% after you got them out of the inflammatory phase, all these things are there. They're doing fine. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't change a thing. You don't need anything else. Keep doing what you're doing. But if they're not healing 50% at four weeks and you've got them out of that inflammatory phase or the cleanup phase, then they are going to need cell signaling molecules or extracellular matrix or some combination of that. What do you do if they don't have extracellular matrix? Give them extracellular. I mean, this is the... I'm not, I'm not going to read this to you. These are the obvious things. They don't have it. You've got to give it to them. How do you give it to them? Amniotic membranes become an option. Finally, we're getting there. Ooh, and I've got like three minutes left before I've got to pass it on. Amnio products come uh, from, from the placenta. So amnion is babyside, 
Corian's mama side, the trophoblast layer on the mama side is kind of the immunogenicity producing portion of the, the Corian. And in um, history, this uh, has been used for some time to try to heal things. Back in the early 1900s, they, at, at Hopkins, they took it out of labor and delivery and shook it off and wiped it with a towel and tried to stick it on things to make things heal. And is she okay? Was that too much? Did you just have a child? No, okay. I mean, if this gets offensive, you did? How are they? Good, I'm glad. I've got one child who doesn't email me anymore. She might be out here for all I know. She's my youngest child. She likes to go to raves, man, and she works at a coffee shop. Good luck with your child. Hope it works out for you. Amnio, right? That's what we're doing. All right. So after they shook it out, labor and delivery, okay, that, that wasn't a good plan. So then, are you passing me a note about I'm being late? Speed up. Wow. Okay. Then use it on, I got a speed up please note. <laughs> Back in the principal's office. So it had to go through these different steps to get to screening. And, and we have what we have now. There are new regulations in the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, to really uh, turn these products into something that's very usable and very safe now. So the gold standard would be right out of labor and delivery. And you're looking for a product, when you're looking for an amnio product, that most mimics straight out of labor and delivery. Remember, in these amnio products, you have got multiple things available, including cells, extracellular matrix, and the signaling molecule. So everything that might be missing is available in those amnio products. And here we see in a, a very busy slide where some of the different collagens come from. Those will be the extracellular matrix, the growth factors that you see on the right. And these final products have the potential right out of labor and delivery to contain everything that you would need. Cells, signaling molecules, and extracellular matrix. Now you have to decide how, are they're, how they're processed, and they're processed in different ways. There's two big categories, viable cell categories and non-viable cell categories. The viable cell ones can be frozen or refrigerated. Frozen, cause, just know that it causes some apoptosis or, or cell death, and so you're not going to get what was put in the freezer right at the beginning, whereas refrigeration does maintain cell viability all the way throughout. When you dehydrate a product, you have non-viable cells, but you still can have all or part of the layers of the amnion and the chorion and the connection between the spongy layer, and you can still have all the growth factors. And so what you get on the bonus side of that is you get a long shelf life from those. So non-viable cells, long shelf life, large variety of sizes, all the growth factors, 640 have been identified. If you have amnion only, just know you're going to lose all the chorion growth factors in the collagens. I mean, this, this is common sense stuff. You chorion only, guess what? You're going to miss stuff. If you just have components of the amnion and chorion, you're going to miss stuff. You're looking for something that's the most complete of amnion, chorion, epithelial layers, spongy layer, everything in between. Because all these layers contain something very important. So these, these layers all piece together are going to 
uniquely contain different signaling molecules, different collagens, and, um, and different types of cells. The spongy layer is one that gets stripped out in a lot of products that are out there that are amnion or amnion and chorion because it was originally used in the eye care world. And the, these amnion products, when they were used in the eye care world, the spongy layer contained a lot of vascular impetus. And, and we like that vascular push in the wound care world. We like a vascular wound bed. But in the eye care world, they didn't like all that vascular supply because it made everyone look like they came from Colorado, right? You didn't want all the red bloodshot eyes afterwards, so they stripped that out. Those products that were available in the eye care world that have been bought out and are now used in wound care, they can't change them. They've got to stay that way. So you're looking for something that still contains all the layers. The spongy or intermediate layer is really important, especially in the vascular growth. And, and we'll just real quickly, we'll talk about a couple different things. The hepatocyte growth factor, which is so important in, in, in growth of the vascular supply and upregulating that hyaluronic acid, uh, which um, again aids so much in the, in the rearrangement of the collagen, but also helps upregulate the vascular growth factors. And then there's something not listed on here. Um, one of the interleukins, IL-1RA, which is something more recently that uh, has been looked at. And this IL-1RA, if you knock it out, if you take it out of the equation, what happens is you don't get the, the vascular growth, you don't get the vascular growth, you don't get the collagen deposition, and you don't get wound healing by knocking out that one little troublemaker. And so that little troublemaker, that IL-1RA, that's found in that spongy layer, the layer that gets stripped out of a lot of them. So you want to find one that's got all those things that can actually lead to wound healing. Here's a case example, and then I will get off the stage. Um, here's somebody who had a guillotine-type amputation. This is uh, actually a little bit down the road, this first picture. Uh, but they've had a guillotine amputation, been, re been revascularized. They're not uh, diabetic, and, uh, but they are neuropathic. And so I want to take them through a, a process. And I put on here, at, at, this is after putting on five weeks of a collagen product with a, a chemical that prevents bacteria from growing back, a, a submu submucosal intestinal product uh, saturated with a PHMB, a, one of those chemicals that prevents the bacteria from coming back. And it looks like a pretty good wound but it didn't close 50% in four weeks, so I moved to the amnio products, and the amnio products, after another four weeks, were really starting to close things. And, and then that begs the question, once you've gotten that far, I mean, that's really good, right? Can we stop it now? I mean, I make great progress from day one. That on the left, after that, I put on the stuff to get it out of the inflammatory phase or the cleanup phase, and then I put on the building supply. Can I quit? Now you can't quit, right? It's still, there's something wrong with them. And so you have to use this stuff all the way until epithelialization. Because they didn't change. You just changed their wound environment, but you didn't change them. All right, I'm going to turn it over now to, to you, sir. Tough to compete with Dr. Rader. 
um, in his very um, an animated style of presentation. I, um, um, the purpose of my part of the talk is to uh, see what's out there when it comes to placental products. See a little bit of, a sci of the science behind those products, how they're processed, uh, what's available, and what I think is good to look for when you're making choices uh, to treat your patients with placental products. A lot of the initial slides are unfortunately uh, slightly repetitive uh, and since Dr. Rader covered them so nicely. And uh, again, as we see the inflammatory phase, I love and I will try to use it in all my talks from now on about the uh, cleanup and the building and the rebuilding phase that Dr. Rader mentioned. Uh, just only focus on uh, the red letters here, which is basically the clinical part and the symptoms that show us the phase that the patient is in the building. In the cleanup phase, the wounds are erythematous, they are tender, they have drainage, and, uh, uh, and of course the biofilm is the number one issue that we need to address. Going to the build, to rebuilding phase, we see granulation, we see uh, some gradual epithelization, either some islands in the tissue, in the wound, or some uh, periphery uh, that looks a little bit pinkier and healthier. And uh, we have less erythema, we have less drainage, the patient has less pain, and that's something that I see consistently when we start using our amniotic products. Our pain scale levels uh, go, go down significantly. And of course, depth and diameter of the wound are improving. We're in, we're in the right track. On the maturation final phase, of course, we have scar and the scar, scar evolution. Uh, to achieve chronic wound healing, and again, that's another um, kind of repetitive slide, we, this is just our center's view on the subject. We have to identify systemic and local factors that are keeping the wound and the inflammatory phase or on the uh, clean, cleanup phase. And, uh, and if they have slightly entered the proliferative phase, what's the thing that stops them from just uh, going through the, the phase and complete wound healing? And you can see that systemic uh, factors just as infection control uh, some of my stuff that I use, that I check for, ambulatory venous hypertension, venous reflux, um, diabetes, pain control, vascular exam, arterial insufficiency, all that stuff needs to be fixed. Otherwise, uh, none of the things that we're going to be doing will make any big difference to the patient. And uh, as I heard a, a nice speaker last night, we will be dropping thousands of dollars on a wound that uh, if we don't fix the systemic things that prevent it from closing, we're just basically going to be losing insurance money, and we're going to be looking bad to the patient, to the administration of the hospital, and to uh, Medicare. So we need to fix that stuff before we start dropping those uh, expensive, valuable products to our patients. Local factors have to do, in my book, mainly with, <coughs> with biofilm control. Um, debridement was overemphasized, and I think correctly, by Dr. Rader. Needs to be sharp, needs to be... Uh, Obsessive compulsive cleanup every time we feel that something um, is not uh, the way we like it in the wound. Uh, quenching the MMPs is uh, another thing that um, biofilm MMPs, MMPs are enzymes. Those enzymes are produced by two sources, by our white cells, meaning the host white cells, and the bacteria. This is a fight between them and us, meaning the, the host and, and them. And, um, all these MMPs are, um, are um, uh, lytic enzymes. They lyse collagen, they lyse DNA, 
there lies proteins, there lies elastase. That's why we have, I think, 27 or 28 MMPs that are identified, because they just lyse everything. We just have to stop them from lysing. I think the best decoy is what was presented by Dr. Rader, is a product that has antimicrobial action and native collagen. I use that, and I, uh, um, I use that on every wound that enters the wound care center and shows to me that has extensive um, MMP or biofilm activity. So uh, to get out of this busy slide, um, I think that uh, at the end, we just need to stimulate the transition of our wound to the proliferative rebuilding uh, phase. After I've optimized all the above systemic and local factors, um, I have to do something to stimulate proliferation, angiogenesis, and reduce my inflammation. So that's another slide also that part of has been already repeated. I'd like although for you guys to pay some um, attention to uh, the, uh, the red letters of that slide. Every layer on the placenta, the, the mummy side, the stroma layer, and the baby side have stuff that we don't see it in the rest of the layers. And, um, and to make the long story short, the message that I um, got after reviewing the literature in preparation for this lecture is that uh, you better have them all. You need to have the amnion, you need to have the stroma layer, and you need to have um, the, the chorion layer. Everyone has, uh, and all these layers have unique characteristics. Uh, some of them have more angiogenic um, properties, some of them have more migrating, proliferative ECM properties. Uh, the stroma layer has something that I never really paid too much attention until recently, the hyaluronic acid that really helps uh, phases of uh, uh, unstall, unstalling wounds. And of course, the chorion layer uh, overall has five times more signaling molecules than the amnion. And, um, and uh, in my book, uh, um, it's an, the most important anti-inflammatory component of, uh, of them all. And it's not coincidental that every amnion product that has chorion and amnion in the market, the company that makes it is advising the chorion site to be applied to the wound. Every product with no exception that has those two layers. There are a few products that have stroma layers also, but all the products with no exception, the IFUs are advised for the product to be um, placed on the wound on the chorion side. So um, uh, we covered that slide about the uh, spongy layer. Uh, how do amniotic membranes heal wound, uh, chronic wounds? Okay, everybody talks about signaling molecules, angiogenesis, proliferation blah, 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 about things that we never knew after we left medical school. But it's difficult to really know why wounds benefit from placental products. Well, I did my search, and uh, there are three or four things that happen that really help the wound. First of all, uh, the wound has stalled. It's in the rebuilding, early rebuilding phase, and things are not moving as much as we would like to move. Uh, placental applications usually have proven to um, coordinate wound extracellular matrix remodeling. That, I think, is the most important reason. It's the scaffold for the wound to start rebuilding. It's the skeleton, it's the steel beams for the building to start um, building up again. Um, the number three is the second most important factor. Why do placental products help chronic wounds? Well, because they do what we call paracrine stimulation of fibroblasts and keratinocytes. 
What's paracrine mean? It means that while well, the keratinocyte is, the, our, our amnion product sends some signaling molecules not to uh, the other products of the amnion, but to wound care, to wound uh, cells. Those cells receive a molecule that is signaling them to switch to a migrating proliferative uh, phenotype, meaning uh, one molecule from our dressing goes down to the wound and tells the wound, start moving, start rebuilding. I think that's the single most important uh, uh, contribution of the amnion layers to our chronic wounds. Uh, now, uh, what do we have in the market? The market has the following. It has fresh placenta, which in my book, and, and, and as Dr. Rader mentioned, it's uh, at this point of historical significance. Uh, it has cryopreserved membranes, it has dehydrated membranes, and it has one lyophilized membrane in the market. What is lyophilization? We'll go over it very briefly. It's dehydration with freeze drying. So it's a combination of mechanical pressure, application of certain solutions, and dehydration with freeze. So what happens, let's start with the cryopreservation. What happens with the products when they get cryopreserved? Well, some of them were also mentioned by a previous speaker. Uh, they, um, uh, what happens is that they are stored in very low temperature. The half-life of the product is shorter than the dehydrated products. When we want to put it on, well, we have to thaw it again. So we need to put it back into the solution with 35 degrees, then 36 degrees, then rinse, then do this, do that. All of us do that from on and off. It's a process, although. And, um, and when it comes down to the molecular level, it involves multiple degrees of tissue architecture, destruction, and, um, and uh, something that is touchy here. Well, let's say we thaw the product. Do we have any viable cells? tricky question, and there is also an even more trickier answer. There are multiple studies that show that, yes, we can have some viable cells. Have they been in vitro studies or in vivo studies? Meaning, are they on the, the Petri dish on a pharmaceutical company or on a patient in your wound care center? The answer is no. They are in vitro studies that show that, yes, we have in cryopreserved placentas, some live cells. Major institutions have tried to duplicate those studies with very, uh, I would say, um, ambiguous results. From zero to 80%, you can find any numbers in the literature. I think the consensus is that there are some, very few, viable cells after we thaw a cryopreserved uh, placental membrane. What happens with the other way, the lyophilization? Lyophilization, is a process that combines dehydration that is a, now not done by heat, but is, by, is done by pressuring the product, squeezing the water out of the cells. At the same time, we freeze the product. So this lyophilization process is associated with some degree of cell death. Dr. Rader used the term apoptosis, which is a, a form of programmed cell death, uh, which is true. There, some of the cells are ap apoptotic. Although the cells are dead, and some of them apoptotic, there is evidence that growth factor and signaling molecules level remain in significant concentrations. When we put it back on the patient, these people 
get the effect of multiple significant concentrations of growth factors and signaling products. One product is described in the market, and I'm going to just uh, say exactly what the manufacturer says in this IFU, that is a lyopreservation technique that keeps cells viable at ambient temperatures. It's a very correct statement. Uh, the literature sub supports that, supports that some of the cells are viable. Now, how do they do that? They incubate with uh, the sugar, it's called trehalose. That's a very funny molecule. It's only two molecules of glucose joined together, and uh, they get the placenta, and they put it into a solution that has trehalose. What happens? Well, trehalose has been shown to preserve cytoplasmic reticulum and mitochondria in very low temperature. Another also very interesting factoid, trechalose was recently discovered in fungi and very small organisms in the Arctic and prevents them from dying over the winter. So that is really a good thing to do, have trechalose in your system if you're going to be in a very cold temperature. Uh, the truth is that the product uh, has a, a very impressive lyophilization technique and the truth is I don't know the numbers, I was not able to find it, find them in preparation to our lecture, has some degree of live cells when we put it on the patient. I don't know how much it is, but it has some degree of live cells and definitely throws some growth factors on the patient. What happens with dehydration now? Now, these are, this is for me my favorite class of products because it has multiple, multiple advantages. Some of them were already pointed by Dr. Rader. They're easy to use. You don't have to be a trained person with advanced hand skills and to, uh, to apply it. It's a kindergarten level application technique. Uh, you just put it on after you have cleaned your wound. Um, dehydration is associated with cell death and a significant reduction of um, growth factors and signaling molecules compared to the fresh placenta. But the remaining growth factors that are seen in dehydrated products are many and there are plenty. There are some, uh, I, I, would, I would come back to this slide, but I wanted to show you on the next slide that all the factors that, are, that we can isolate from dehydrated products are there. They're in large quantities. They're on every dehydrated product around 50% of the fresh placenta, but who's gonna put a fresh placenta in this day and age on a wound? I guess, I don't know, would anybody do that? Probably not, right? I, I would never do that. Uh, I'll take the 50%, provided that it's sterile, it's easy to use, and provided that we have proof that has all my factors. I want angiogenic factors, I want immune modulating factors, I want anti-inflammatory factors, and I want also migrating proliferative and regenerative factors. The dehydrated products have all, all of them. Go back to the previous slide just to show you what's going on in the market right now. The majority of the products that are out, and this is a US market, okay? If we go Asia and Europe, the, 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 um, the um, table would be triple that size. So for us here, the majority of our products are dehydrated. Not all dehydrated products are, are created equal in my book. Uh, and I'm gonna go to what Dr. Rader mentioned before. Um, they don't have the stroma layer. The closest to normal placenta is when we have amnion, chorion, 
and, and stromal layer. Uh, let me go over a few of our wounds. Um, some of them, I'm happy that you already had breakfast. So uh, this is a patient that uh, came to us after uh, multiple excisions of squamous cell carcinomas with a wound that uh, was approximately 45 square centimeters. So the, um, this, the tumor excision was uh, performed one month prior, the last tumor excision was performed one month prior to the presentation of our center to, uh, to our center. Uh, she has had uh, um, some uh, flaps that did not take so well. She had a necrotic center. Uh, I proceeded with uh, what I use lately for complicated wounds and um, is uh, treat them with a product that has antimicrobial action and takes the wound under the inflammatory phase uh, with a collagen dressing. I use a six weekly application of that product and then I um, followed with five weekly applications of a dehydrated amniotic product. Um, the wound was healed by um, week 11. Of course, I've done my homework uh, as Dr. Rader did. I've checked for venous insufficiency, I've checked for arterial insufficiency, and all the stuff is corrected by us immediately after uh, uh, the patient initially presents to the wound care center. This is another one that is a little bit more complicated, has a little bit more vascular stuff, and since I'm a vascular surgeon, uh, I would like to brag a little bit about this patient because it was a patient that had a very complicated vascular history. She presented with a 42-centimeter 40, ischemic infected draining malodorous wound on the right mid-medial calf. Uh, she had extensive vascular disease that included long segment chronic occlusions of all the major arteries going down to that extremity. Uh, due to the very infected ischemic and, uh, wound and the occluded uh, right common femoral artery, which is our main feeder for the leg, right, the common femoral artery in the groin, she had an extensive vascular reconstruction that was involving cadaveric, meaning cryopreserved saphenous vein from a cadaver. And after that, following the uh, technique that I described before, which involves for me um, cleaning up the patient's uh, wound, making sure that we don't reform biofilm, and then apply our amniotic product when we are clearly, in my book, in the rebuilding phase, the patient healed, healed by, uh, by nine weeks. I don't have the week nine here. I was not able, able to find that picture, but week nine, I have week eight. Week nine, the patient had a complete wound. So uh, this is another patient that uh, was referred to me for uh, to basically do a baloney amputation. Uh, this uh, um, uh, uh, it was a highly complicated patient with recent uh, all these bad things that you see on the history. The worst thing for me was that he had a rapidly declining kidney function. So I could not do anything with his vascular system because every time you use a contrast, you basically make the kidneys worse and the patient is gonna go on dialysis. So uh, eventually the patient went on dialysis and as soon as he went on dialysis, I started fixing some of his arteries that uh, were uh, clogged. You can see here um, multiple areas of necrosis. The first metatarsophalangeal joint is black, uh, tissue necrosis um, and uh, um, it took me a year plus to uh, finally heal it. Uh, the series of biofilm reducing strategies and amniotic products were applied. 
I have to say that the last three to four months were we made more, project, uh, more progress, but this patient now has his leg, and that's the bottom line here. Complete healing at 13, 13 months. So this is something that I wanted to share with you because it's something that is pushing the boundaries of, um, of amniones. Uh, this is a 64-year-old female patient that, you know, chronic smoker, had a two-year history of progressively enlarging and extremely foul-smelling necrotic and draining exophytic left neck mass. The problem with us was that uh, on the CAT scan, the mass was touching the carotid artery with an imminent risk of carotid artery rupture. So we needed something to be done. Uh, not to be done with a wound per se, but we needed to reduce the wound fast. We needed to create tissue more between the adventitia of the left internal carotid artery and the wound. Now, how can you create tissue and put growth factors on somebody that has cancer. That means that you're gonna probably make their malignancy worse. So there was a, some degree of compromise involved. Uh, there were a few meetings with the oncologist and a few meetings with the radiation oncologist. The patient uh, did not consent to radiation, but he consen she consented to, multiple, uh, to a multiple um, chemotherapy regimen. Uh, we initially uh, managed the uh, odor and the drainage. And um, when we got it, we had serial PET scans and also serial microbiopsies that show, and when we, when we got all our PET scans and all our biopsies showing no malignancy, we applied um, uh, some amniotic products. For some reason, we raised the thickness of that skin, of that area from the carotid artery from uh, one millimeter to a centimeter. So we were now safe that we will not lose the patient from carotid exsanguination um, and she will not die uh, uh, a miserable death. Unfortunately, something else got to that patient and it was a bilateral pneumonia due to her immu immunocompromisation from chemotherapy. And we lost that patient uh, one week after the last slide on your uh, right side. After almost the wound was closed, she died from a bilateral pneumonia. I think uh, that was pushing the boundaries, but showed us what we can do with those products. So uh, just as a very quick uh, recap thing that um, I got from preparing for this presentation, I think we need um, products that have all layers. Every layer has its significance. There are many products in the market and there are individual physician characteristics that lead us and patient characteristics that lead us to choose which product. But I would use something that is easy to use and has all the layers that Mother Nature gave to the placenta. And uh, with that, I would thank you for your attention and we will both of us welcome questions. Just a quick question. There's over here. Hello. Yes, sir. Hi. I'm listening. There, there's a couple of companies that have injectable placental products. Yes. Since they're injectable and they don't have this layer matrix, how are they affected? I'm not sure. I thought about it when I was doing this presentation. These products are uh, have a mixture of these products have the mixture of all layers. Uh, they have. I, I think they're useful. They're useful products. 
uh, because they go to areas where a, a regular amniotic product cannot reach. They go in tunnels, they go in fistulas, meaning fistulous tracts. They go in bones, they go inside and outside joints. I'm not sure how they work, but I think that they definitely have a place today, and I'm sure more data is coming out. I do not know the answer to your question, although, when it comes to which parts of the placenta are participating in the wound healing in these cases. So, Corrida, <clears throat> anything on that? No, there's just no data out there right now. Yes, sir. Okay. So once you place this amniotic membrane, <clears throat> how long, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, <clears throat> how long do these growth factors stick around for? What's their half well, life? There are a couple of slides that I jumped because yeah. we were a little bit on the late side. Yeah. And one of them, no. <laughs> one of them was, um, one of them was some, uh, some uh, graphics that showed that basically when you put a, when you put a uh, product on, the first 12 hours, 35% of growth factors are released in the wound. And from the first 12 hours to seven days, you get the rest of the growth factors. I think seven plus days, you have supranormal advantageous growth factor levels in the wound. So uh, the answer is a significant part, bolus application of growth factors, signaling molecules and proliferative factors, the first few hours and the rest over seven days. Dr. Rader, I don't know if you wanna add something on that. No, I think that those set of graphs demonstrate very well that the dosing should be every seven days, and they give up roughly 100% of their, of their signaling molecules during that seven-day period. Yes. Now, when uh, in the last slide you're showing this, uh, uh, this patient who passed away after one week uh, of the heel wound, um, was the, the wound was uh, completely free of the cancer? It wasn't completely healed, but it was half of what it was in the last slide. No, no, but the wound was uh, like completely free of cancer. What is it? The wound was completely free of cancer with two PET scans and uh, multiple circumferential biopsies. And the, after that, you started using the... Well, yes. After we did two PET scans and uh, circumferential biopsies, we got all this to a conference with the oncologists and they gave approval to use amnions. I was pushing for two reasons. My number one reason, since I'm a vascular surgeon, is that the tumor was on the adventitia of the carotid. And he, we, we could, he, he was in an imminent risk of rapture. But we would never do that unless we had a panel that was consenting, and if we had neg negative PET scans and uh, negative biopsies. Okay. All right, thank you, everybody. <clears throat>